I'm Josh Young. Before we begin today's program, I want to announce a large expansion of As Seen From Here. Today we launch the World Service of As Seen From Here, a cooperative effort between the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and a number of foreign universities and academic medical institutions. Over the next few months, you'll meet the ophthalmologists hosting As Seen From Here in their own languages. The idea is that while many ophthalmologists the world over speak some English, many who are less fluent might feel more comfortable listening to a summary of the program's interview in their own language first. The original English language program follows this summary. Today, we roll out the first of our World Service podcasts, a Thai version of As Seen From Here. To tell us more, I have Boonsong from Rajavithi Hospital in Bangkok and Allison Angelili from NYU. Allison is our editor for Thailand. Boonsong hosts the program. Hi, Allie. Hi, Josh. What is As Seen From Bangkok? Well, Josh, we know that many ophthalmologists in Thailand speak English, so what we've done here is have a 10-minute preface in Thai to introduce the topic to the listener so that they feel more comfortable listening to the entire podcast. We think this will make our podcast more useful to our colleagues in Thailand, and you can find our podcasts at www.asseenfrombangkok.com. Hey, Boonsong. Hi, Alison. Boonsong, where are you based? I am in Lachaviti Hospital, Bangkok, Thailand. Lachaviti is a general hospital located in the center of Bangkok. We train uh, 100 residents a year in several fields of specialties, including ophthalmology. It is very interesting that we will use the asinformbangkok.com for teaching our residents and fellows in ophthalmology. Boonsong, what's on the first program? The first program is on Dr. Champel's study in Sijits. Thanks, Boonsong. Sawadi. Goodbye. Thai is the first of several foreign language versions of the podcast. Ali, give us that address again. Sure, Josh. It's www.asseenfrombangkok.com. Check it out. Thanks, Ali. Sawadi. On today's program, diabetic retinopathy after cataract extraction. For diabetics, attaining good vision are poorer than those without diabetes, especially if your diabetes is at a worse state. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Patel declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing, and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. We know that diabetes is associated with cataract development, but is the reverse true? Can uncomplicated cataract surgery worsen diabetic retinopathy? Jiggs Patel from the Royal Perth Hospital recently published results of a study addressing this question. 
Dr. Patel investigated what goes on in the eye of a diabetic patient after cataract extraction, and I'm happy to have him as my guest today. What are the complications for which diabetics are at particular risk after cataract extraction? Well, the three main complications are uh, macular edema, uh, progression of uh, retinopathy to um, active proliferative retinopathy, and um, iris nevascularization or and rubiosis. Well, the worse your diabetic retinopathy pre-op, and the more active it is, the greater the chance of those complications occurring. Do diabetic patients generally fare more poorly after cataract extraction than do non-diabetics? Yes, they, they do. Um, as I said in, in my paper, that the results for diabetics at, attaining a good vision are poorer than those with, without diabetes, especially the diabetes is at a worse state. I think, the, I think recent studies show those with very mild diabetic retinopathy or no diabetic retinopathy have just as comparable results as non-diabetics. But as you start progressing into worse, worse state diabetic retinopathy, your results can decrease. Does this correlate with the patient's diabetic control? I, I think on the ocular point of view, I think it, it correlates with the, um, the, the, the fundus picture. You know, if you've got... Uh, maculopathy or if you've got active new vessels. Um, but that probably is also a reflection of your general control, systemic control of diabetes and blood pressure. Pathophysiologically, why do these complications occur? Why are diabetics at greater risk uh, for things like macular edema after cataract extraction? On the, on the, on the limited number of patients we had in my, in my study, um, who all had fairly advanced level of diabetic retinopathy, there were changes in the, in the growth factors, namely the VEGF growth factor, um, the other angiogenic growth factor, hepatocyte growth factor. All these factors increased in the, in the immediate post-operative period. Um, and there was also a small decrease in the anti-angiogenic factor of um, pigment epithelial-derived factor. The, the balance may have just shifted away from being protective against pro-angiogenic stimuli. What role do anterior to posterior diffusion gradients play? There's, there's always going to be, you know, as seen in the clinical scenario of rubiosis, there is anterior diffusion of all the growth factors um, to greater or lesser extent. In terms of what role do they play, they, I think mainly that their action will be on the posterior segment um, where, and where they're locally released. But the anterior structures of the eye can also release growth factors as well. Um, as well as the diffusion that's occurring. Can I have you explain in a little more detail what these diffusion gradients are? From the clinical point of view, we're surmising that these gradients exist because we're, we're, we're tapping the aqueous and monitoring those levels as a reflection of what's happening in the posterior segment by correlating the clinical signs. So in terms of the gradients, the growth factors like VEGF showed a marked increase in the immediate post-operative period, as does hepatocyte growth factor. And pigment epithelial derived factor, which is mainly produced by the um, retinal pigment epithelium and the largest antiogenic agent in the vitreous, um, that showed a decrease in the aqueous. So it's surmising that those growth factors are in the aqueous are reflecting what's happening in the vitreous. In terms of interleukin 1-beta, which is an acute inflammatory cytokine, I, I suspect it may be a reflection of what's happening in the vitreous, but may also be what's happening in the anterior chamber, because that's where the cataract surgery is occurring. What was the design of the study? It's a study that was approved by the ethics board, um, and we fully consented by the patients. Essentially, we took uh, diabetic patients with um, uh, fairly advanced levels of diabetic retinopathy um, from severe 
non-proliferative retinopathy, two um, quiescent proliferative retinopathy, and two had low-risk proliferative disease. And all these, there were six patients and seven eyes, and, but all of them had no preoperative clinically significant macular edema. Um, the macula is essentially dry. They ha all had previous some degree of uh, macular laser or panretinal PRP laser. And essentially, we just did a routine cataract surgery and phacoemulsification. Um, and then at various time points, which was one day, one week, one month, we followed them up and took aqueous samples. And from the aqueous samples, we did, uh, we're uh, creating an ELISA system to measure these growth factors and try to correlate that with um, the cl any clinical appearance of a worsening of retinopathy or macular edema, and then and the angiographic findings on the fluorescein. How were the postoperative aqueous samples taken? Oh, the aqueous samples were taken. Um, the patients were again consented and fully prepped with iodine prep, poverty and iodine prep, and then I think using an insulin syringe, um, just tapped uh, 0.1 uh, cc's of or 100 microliters of up to 100 microliters of aqueous from the anterior chamber. And, and then just given um, routine care with antibiotic drops afterwards. What were the factors that you assayed? Uh, we studied uh, VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, um, hepatocyte growth factor, interleukin-1 beta, and pigment epithelial-derived factor. How well controlled were these patients in terms of their diabetes? Um, in terms of diabetes, um, I think the average um, HbA1c was 8%, um, but the range was 58 to 9.9%. Can you describe the cataract extraction technique? They all underwent uh, routine. I think it was a squirrel pocket uh, incision. They had a 7 millimeter, uh, well, routine phacoemulsification and an insertion of a um, 7 millimeter PMMA lens into the bag. Jiggs, what were your findings? Well, the main, the main findings in terms of growth factor changes, um, the VEGF levels demonstrated an increase one day after surgery. And then at one week, it decreased back to a level just above baseline. And one month, it sort of stayed around the same level, maybe a slight increase. Again, HDF showed increases from one day to one month in the post-op period. Interleukin 1 beta was interesting. It had an acute rise at one day, and then it fell back towards baseline levels. And then the PEDF showed a basically a steady but small decrease in the PEDF levels from baseline. Now, unfortunately, um, even though the patient had consented to have these, uh, these serial post-operative aqueous taps done, not all, not all of them agreed to have them all done at each time point. So I've got my, the problem with the study is that there's a small number of eyes, and not all the patients had all the aqueous taps time point. So these are only trends I can talk about based on the, on the number of uh, aqueous samples I do have. Now, just once more, the VEGF, the VEGF, yeah. and the HGF are angiogenic factors, and the PEDF is an anti-angiogenic factor. Is that right? Yeah. Now, generally, the angiogenic cytokines went up by about a factor of 10 on post-op day one. Yeah, the, the VEGF went up from, if you, talk, if you look at the results, from uh, in one patient, like from 83 picograms to 2,000 picograms in day one post-op in one eye. Jiggs, how does the cytokine concentration correlate with physical findings on examination like macular edema? It's difficult, it's difficult to say. So when I'm just looking at, looking at the eyes and remembering back, 
there were some patients who who showed like this one patient who went up dramatically from 83 to 2000 on day one uh, in terms of his VEGF, but in one month clinical data showed um, hypofluorescence on the floor with no clinical macular edema. The one patient who did develop um, clinically significant macular edema, in interestingly, his VEGF rose at one day again, but by one month they had fallen back to below baseline. But what was interesting about him was that his hepatocyte growth factor um, continued to increase during the one-month post-op period compared to the others who just showed um, plain hyperfluorescence. The association between increased VEGF concentration and macular edema in these patients is presumably because of the action of VEGF as a vascular permeability factor rather than as an angiogenic factor. Yeah. What do you think that the lag time is between the peak in cytokine concentration, like VEGF concentration, and the development of clinical macular edema? You're saying, you're saying if it, how long will it take once you've got the rise to get the edema? Now, I realize that this isn't something that you specifically looked at in this paper. No, it, was, well, it wasn't, because we did the fluorescence at one month after baseline. So the, the rise, all the rise in the VEGF had occurred by day one. And no, no patient should show the continued, continued rise. Now, it may just be that you need um, that can't tell from the study, you know, how long it takes for the edema to come. And, and looking at it, there was no, you know, the clinical edema in the one patient which we showed occurred at the one month after surgery. Did different cytokines correlate with different physical findings? Well, the, the only physical findings we're looking at were progression of retinopathy and uh, and or uh, macular edema. And so um, I don't think the study went that closely to look at which cytokine produced which physical finding. I think it's probably uh, the, whole, the whole cocktail of cytokines and the change in them or the change in the balance between angiogenic and anti-angiogenic that produces your physical finding. Jiggs, what do you think that this all means from a clinical perspective? I think from a clinical st standpoint, um, I think you've got to... We have to be careful and tell the patients that even though cataract surgery has a good uh, success rate, in those patients with advanced diabetic retinopathy, we just have to be warned them that the final outcome may not be as perfect as those patients without diabetes. Uh, we have to be very um, vigilant in terms of their retinopathy and macular edema. And maybe, if possible, if those, those patients with preoperative macular edema um, postpone the surgery to do laser to do laser treatment to the macula before doing surgery, and or maybe use intravitreal transcendinalizer, increasingly used preoperatively after the surgery, um, to try and reduce the edema in the post-op period. I was just going to ask that. What direction do you think these findings point us in from a therapeutic standpoint? Well, if you can, if you can do the laser beforehand uh, and, and make the diabetic retinopathy as quiet and the macular edema as as least as possible, that would be great. If you need to do the surgery, then uh, in terms of the macroedema, uh, in my, in my um, unit here at Royal Perth, uh, the attending always advocates uh, preoperative or perioperative triamcindolone as long as they've had a good macular laser treatment beforehand um, to try and reduce the post-op macular edema. And in the post-op period, be very vigilant. See the patient maybe a week after surgery and have a good look at the fundus. And if it needs laser treatment, 
then start instigating laser treatment then on if the retinopathy is getting worse or the macrodema is getting worse. So they are giving intravitreal triamcinolone at the time of cataract surgery? Yeah, so once the main cataract surgery is done and, the, and everything's in order, then we just inject um, through the power splainer 0.1 mils of 4 milligrams triamcinolone. Of the 40 milligrams per milliliter triamcinolone, Mil. so they're giving a total of 4 milligrams. Yeah, so it's a 40 milligrams in, in a mil uh, stand, standard concentration using on 4 milligrams in 0.1 cc. As a retina specialist, I, I would guess that these findings uh, probably don't influence your practice terribly with respect to management of these patients um, perioperatively uh, with regard to cataract surgery. No, 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 not from these findings, no. Just, I think these findings just um, highlight the, the, the practice that, I, that I've been taught and I'm, I'm, and I'm following is that, you know, because of these changes in the growth factors that do occur, you need to be extra vigilant uh, preoperatively, peri, and postoperatively for the patient. Jigs Patel, thank you very much. Oh, thanks very much. Jignath Patel is Retina Fellow at the Royal Perth Hospital in Perth, Australia. His paper, Diabetic Cataract Removal, Postoperative Progression of Maculopathy, Growth Factor and Clinical Analysis, appears in the June 2006 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Patel or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.